If you missed last Sunday, we launched into a new decade. Not just a new year, a new decade together, talking about the opportunity we have as a church to play our part in what God is doing for his kingdom all over the world. I am increasingly convinced that the 2020s are a defining decade all over the world for the Big C Church. I believe the brokenness of humanity has never been more on display. I believe people have never been more divided and in need of unity. I believe that people are ready for Jesus to stand out as the light of the world more than any other option because the darkness feels so thick. Guys, the darkness works to our advantage. We are light. And so in the 2020s, this is bigger than Auburn. I feel like all over the world, and you just look at multiple things happening in in world affairs and multiple things happening in the life of the church and technology, and, and you look around at some of the prayers that have been prayed for generations, and I feel like we have an opportunity to see days on planet Earth that have never been seen before as the gospel goes out to all nations. It's crazy what we get the opportunity to play a part in. So then there's this little community church in Auburn, Alabama, locked and loaded with the next generation passionate about Jesus and a community of families set on living full of faith, not for their own comfort. I get goosebumps down my spine when I think about what we get to take part in. And not because I'm the lead pastor of this church, but because I have eyes that can see clearly. You know what? You don't even need 2020 vision to see that the seat that you're sitting in this morning is special. Like you just need to kind of be able to discern something. The part that we get to play, and yes, it is small in the grand scheme of things. We're humbled to get to play a small part in what God is doing, not just all over the world, but here in Auburn. You know, there's some amazing ministries and churches in Auburn, not called Auburn Community Church. And that's a great thing. But when we think about this thing that we've been entrusted with and this thing that we get to steward, we're pretty grateful for it. And we're pretty excited about it. And we kind of think it's a big deal. But here's what I said last week. I said, you know what? If I had one word for ACC for the 2020s, not just this year, but for the next decade, the one word that God has given me is two words, but it's really one word because God can do things like that. (laughs) It's grace and truth. Scripture says in John chapter 1, verses 13 through 14, that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son, sent from the Father, full of grace and truth. So when John describes Jesus coming down from heaven into a human body, he says he was 100% grace and 100% truth. And I believe our capacity to do what we are called to do over the course of the next decade depends on our ability to stay 100% uncompromisingly committed to both of those things. It's not some grace and some truth. It's not make people feel better and feel forgiven, but also stay committed to the Bible sometimes and just kind of oscillate back and forth. It is 100% committed to love and 100% committed to obedience. You cannot separate the two, not because they're one in concept, they're one in person. If Jesus is full of both and from his fullness, we experience fullness on the inside, then what does that mean if you're a Christian in this room? It means you're full of both. 
We don't have to choose between one or the other and constantly go back and forth between feeling forgiven and like we need to do better and discipline ourselves. No, we can experience a relational connection with Jesus that allows us to be full of grace and truth. More than ever, I would ask you that if you missed the sermon last week, get on the podcast, get on our YouTube page, and make sure you are tuned in because that was sort of a trajectory-setting moment for our church as we look forward. One of the things I said last week is I said the next three Sundays, we're going to be talking about the most polarizing issues in culture where the world has pointed at the church and said, you must decide grace or truth, but it can't be both. So like next week, when we talk about politics and racism on MLK weekend in an election year, we're going to talk about how it is not our job to decide between two sides. It is our job to make sure we are internally full of Jesus and live that out. That's next week. Two weeks from now, when we talk about anxiety and depression and suicide, we're going to talk about how the church is a hospital for the broken and there no longer needs to be this dark cloud over people who are struggling with mental illness. At the same time, we believe full of faith that suicide is not the answer. They are going to see the light of God in the land of the living. They are going to experience joy again and they're going to step into all God has for them. And we're going to be the place that points to the fact that you don't decide between grace and truth. But I believe the issue that the world is looking at the church more than both of those things that we're going to talk about over the next two weeks, invite a friend and pray for me, Um, more than the world is looking at the church about either of those things, the world is looking at the church most of all to tell us, will it be grace or will it be truth in regards to human sexuality? So today... The topic of conversation, get ready, it's sexuality. Could you look at the person next to you and say, I'm just kidding. Uh, Some of you are like, no, you don't, no, you won't, no, you won't. I won't, I won't, okay. I'm gonna do a lot of things today. It's gonna make everybody really uncomfortable, but that's not not gonna be one of them. Okay, so here's the thing, disclaimer. We sent out an email to all the parents that we're connected with and said, hey, this could be a good week to take your kids over to ACC Kids. This is a good point for me to tell you guys as a church that our children's ministry is designed so that parents have an environment to raise their kids, getting content that is relevant for them. But also, as soon as parents are ready to bring their kids into church, we want them in here, not over there. We want them seeing people worship passionately. We want them hearing preaching like this, like it's normal. We want them to grow up in this environment as fast as possible. But when we have Sundays like this, it's good to let parents know. You know your kids better than anyone. By the way, this is your free time period. No one's going to look at you. If you walk out and take your kid over to ACC, kids will probably clap. Like, like you've got time. This is kind of your last couple of moments. Let me see if I can find something else to say that's safe. Okay. Um, I want to say this too. Today's message is a baseline foundation for how you and I can relate to the world full of grace and truth and how you and I can apply grace and truth to our own experience with sexual sin, sexual intimacy, and sexual immorality. So it's a baseline message. There is no way I am going to be able in one sermon to cover every single question about every single issue. There's no way I can accurately and totally walk through the Bible and go, this is what the Bible says about this issue, and it's black and white here. We need to talk about this. We need to talk about that. I just want you to know, if you're here and you're kind of thinking, okay, but you left this out, there's no way I can say everything. 
I do feel like God has spoken to me and I do feel like God is going to say something special. At the same time, this is the type of message that I feel an increasing responsibility to be available. So tonight, after the seven o'clock gathering, which will end about 10.30 p.m., uh, I'm just kidding, it'll end at like 8.30, I am going to ask everybody who wants to leave to leave, but if anybody wants to stay tonight after the final time this sermon is preached and ask questions, any questions you have for me, Tonight is your time to do that, and that could be like 10 people, that could be 100 people, but uh, I just want to make myself available for that moment. Okay, no, no kids left. All right, you guys are bold. Are you guys ready for this? Are you at least a bit excited, or are you nervous? You're nervous. Okay. Um, this is huge that from the beginning, before we open the scriptures, I say that we are not presenting a plan or a stance on sexuality today. We're presenting the solution, which is your own relational connection to Jesus. So when the world forces a splitting tension, are, are you going to adjust with the times post-sexual revolution of the 60s, 70s, and 80s and update your stance that sexuality should look like one man, one woman for one lifetime? Come on, church. Come on, Christians. You must adjust your mindset. And, and so what the church has been forced to do is look at grace and truth and go, okay, we've got real friends and real people who struggle with things that they feel like are so natural for them. We've got people who are openly addicted and disobeying God in ways that they feel like today, even in this room, that they can't control. We've got things going on that are deeper than a stance, but yet we're supposed to take a stance that either looks like approving of behaviors that are sinful or disapproving and shutting people off, and neither one of those options are working. But what I want to do today is not say, here's how you manage that tension. What I want to do today is teach you how to have a relational connection on the inside to Jesus that solves the tension for you individually and then his love can get through you. So all I can do is operate from personal experience today. And I'll tell you, as someone who has been following Jesus for 19 years, the number one tension in my life over time that I have felt like a roller coaster ride going back and forth between grace and truth and grace and truth is sexuality. I grew up in the true love waits generation where we were told, don't have sex before you're married. And that was pretty much all the direction we were given. Now, keep in mind, this was, this was pre-internet, barely. This was pre-pornography having a seat at your breakfast table. And so a lot of that, I, I, don't, I don't blame on the leadership. I, I blame it more on just an, an adjustment with the times. And so I felt like, okay, truth looks like not having sex before I'm married and then getting married and just kind of figuring things out from there. But what the world gave around me and what happened around me was all of this brokenness. And so what I started to do as a teenager is started to engage in a lot of what the world had to offer. And then I would come to church and I would experience one of two things that were both not helpful. Constant hypocrisy and trying to believe that I was forgiven but not change my behavior or constant shaming and leaving feeling like I'm no longer worthy to be called a son of God. And so I would go to church and it'd be like, you're forgiven, you're washed clean. We would sing a song called Jesus Paid It All. And I would feel an increasing sense that, oh, wow, God has washed my sins away. That's so awesome. But there was never a back-end option for how to actually walk in freedom. At least on my part, there was an openness to continue to walk in disobedience. But all I would need is the next church service to tell me that I was forgiven. But it didn't leave me feeling clean. It left me feeling 
double-minded, dirty, broken. And so it was like, yeah, I know I'm forgiven. But then on the truth side of things, that one hurt even worse because it was like, well, there's other guys who are able to navigate this. And there's other people who have faithfully obeyed God. And you get, you know, the youth pastor up there. I waited for my wife. I never looked. I never touched. I never did it. And I'm sitting there at 15 years old, want to be a pastor. And I'm like, well, I guess... I guess, I'm, I guess I'm disqualified, but I never figured out, okay, how do, you, how do you manage being forgiven by Jesus personally and being committed to truth and actually walking faithfully and obedient to God? So here's what I believe we're going to do at ACC today, but not just today. Here's what I believe ACC is going to become moving forward. I believe ACC should be the safest place in the world for anyone struggling with sexual brokenness, and that's all of us. I believe this should be the safest place in the world to walk in and feel like you have a home, to walk in and hear God say it's not over, to walk in and be reminded you're a son, you're a daughter of the living God based on the finished work of Jesus. This is the safest place in the world for anyone stuck in sexual sin. But it's also the most unsafe place in the world for anyone who wants to stay the same. So I was talking to somebody this week. They were asking me where we're going this Sunday, and I said, it's like every Sunday at ACC. I want you to feel like you're getting a hug, and like simultaneously, somebody's stepping on your toes at the exact same time. You're like, oh, I love this. Ow, I got to change. Like, I, like that, that's what I want this to feel like, but you can't do that based on how you deliver a sermon or sing a song. You have to do that based on culture. And if you do any study on culture, culture is simply the way things are. It's something viral, it's something organic. We have to learn to embody this as Jesus followers personally so that it can get out there. So what today will not be, this will not be our stance on all things related to sexuality. This will be our church's roadmap moving forward for how we come together and build a culture where people are safe, but also have the freedom to change. You might be like, wait, why are we talking about this? Can I just be honest with you? Because no one else is. And the ones who are are doing it wrong. So there's this unwritten rule that when you have a church of a certain size, you don't talk about some of the things that we're talking about today because it risks your future opportunities. It risks the people who are in the room being offended. It risks questions being asked that don't need to be asked. And I just thought, how much of that mindset, I'm not shaming anybody, but how much of that mindset has hurt the people who are sitting where you're sitting because you legitimately do not know how you are supposed to navigate some of these questions and better yet, how you are supposed to navigate it personally in your own relationship with God. But no, uh, don't ask, don't tell, because we want to keep things the way that we are. Listen, I love those numbers, but if those numbers go down because we're faithful to the Bible, we're going to be faithful to the Bible, and we're going to watch God bless what we're doing. So that's what we're going to do. If you have your Bible, hold it up, because this is not a man's opinion. This is the word of the living God that sets us free. Oh, this is so good. You want to know what's great about single people drill today? We're coming off of a month off. Holidays have happened. People failed over Christmas. Passion conference happened, so you know a lot of breakups happened because people got convicted. And so yeah, we're going to have a major single people drill tonight at the 7. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 16, and I'm going to read a very, very, very long section of Scripture, and I hope that you'll tune in for the entirety of me reading it. Don't miss a word. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Romans is the fifth, sorry, sixth book of the New Testament. 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell the story, the gospel accounts of the life of Jesus. The book of Acts is actually Luke part two. Luke wrote Acts, but Acts is the story of how the early church spread all over the world, including the lives of guys like Peter and Paul. And then in Romans, you get to the beginning of the life of Paul, where he has gone from somebody who opposed Christianity to somebody who is spreading the church all over the Greco-Roman world. And his letters in the New Testament are letters to real churches with real problems. So most of the time when Paul sits down to write a letter, he's got an urgent reason why he's writing a letter. And that is why Romans is special. You ever read Romans and felt like, I love all of Paul's letters, but this Romans thing is crazy. It's because it's different. His situation was very unique. Now, letters like Ephesians and Philippians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Corinthians, there's like real problems that Paul's like, I got to address this. Books like Colossians, which we're going to do a series on later this year, was just one that Paul's like, I get to write about whatever I want. I'm going to write about the supremacy of Jesus. But Romans was unique in that Paul wanted to take up an offering from the church in Rome so that he could take the gospel over to Spain. Problem, he can't get to Rome at the current time. And so he's like, this is what he says in chapter one, I've got to write what I would preach to you if I was in person because I can't get to you. But as I write this to you, I'm going to take up an offering from you because you need to understand this. In the Greco-Roman world, everything hinged on reciprocity. If somebody did something for you, you automatically thought, I've got to do something for them. And it wasn't as much of a transactional system as it was just, it was just the way things were. So Paul establishes in Romans 1, I'm going to give you guys my full, unfiltered, unadulterated gospel. This is Paul's number one sermon. That's what Romans is. If I was in front of you, this is what I would say. And the reason why in the middle of Romans, Paul starts asking all these rhetorical questions. This is why Romans is longer. It's because he's pretending like they're in front of them asking him questions. In ancient Rome, when you would do a speech, immediately after you would do a speech, you would have to answer questions. And that's why Paul says things like, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? You're like, Paul, why are you talking to yourself? He's, he's doing it rhetorically. He's pretending to be them. So what you have at the beginning of Romans is you have Paul's go-to gospel presentation for the sake of trading the gospel in exchange for financial support so that the gospel can go out. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Was that bio helpful? Does that help you read Romans well? Okay. If you're there, say I'm there. Romans 1, 1, 6. Can I hear all the 1, 1, 6 crew in the room? For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. This is the close of Paul's intro. If you see it in your Bible, you can see that we're moving on to another section. Paul's like, I'm not ashamed of the good news about Jesus. It's the power of God to save. What is the gospel? The gospel is that mankind can be made right with God. That's what righteousness means based on faith, not works. So you believe in the finished work of Jesus, you're made right with God. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Here's the gospel. Now we have the beginning of Paul's go-to gospel presentation, and this is going to be a mouthful. We're about to read some intense verses. I need you guys to lock in. Verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them. Because God has made it plain to them. 
For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do the very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Wow. Can you breathe? That's the beginning of Paul's gospel. And you might be like, wait, wait, wait. Doesn't gospel mean good news about Jesus? Isn't the gospel the message that Jesus died to save sinners from death? Yes. But if you skip to the cross and you skip to mercy, you'll, know, you'll in no way be able to feel the weight of what Jesus was dying for in that moment. That's why in our Wrecked by Grace series, we kept saying, when you share the gospel with somebody, don't start with, Jesus died to forgive you. Start with why you need to be forgiven in the first place. God is holy. God is perfect. God is righteous. Mankind is sinful. Mankind is rebellious. Mankind has a depraved state. Mankind is broken. When you combine God's perfection with our fallen state, the result is wrath. And that's why the good news starts with Paul going, The wrath of God is being poured out on sinful humanity. You're like, oh my gosh, what do I do with this? They suppress the truth by their wickedness since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, this is big, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. In the Wreck by Grace series, I mentioned that if you've never heard the name of Jesus, you're still guilty before a holy God. This is where I got that from. That in creation, all you and I have is enough knowledge of God to send us to hell forever. We see that he exists. We see that we've been created for a purpose, but there's this condition holding us back from not only believing the truth, but walking in the truth. Scripture says we are the ones who suppress the truth by our own wickedness. How do we do that? Although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. 
The result of our sinful condition is that God is glorious, we're sinful, and even though we know he exists, we don't glorify him, we don't acknowledge him, we don't make much of him, nor do we thank him. Remember, thankfulness is always at the center of the Christian life. In our thinking, we become futile and our understanding becomes darkened and we end up trading our creator for created things, idolatry. We look at ourselves and we say, we're God. Everything around us that has been made is God and I'm going to serve that. Here's the conclusion in verse 24. God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Pay close attention to that. The, everybody look up here, the first after effect that Paul mentions about the sinfulness of humanity is sexual impurity. So even though Paul's got a long list in Romans chapter one that manifests the sinfulness of humanity, he starts with something sexual. And his conclusion is they traded the truth about God. Notice that. Not the truth of God, the truth about God. Because every lie of sin is a lie about God's character as a good father who wants to give his kids good gifts. Remember the garden. Did God really say you can't have this apple? See, what you and I do when we step into sin is we agree with sin and we agree with Satan. And I'm, not, I'm going to use Satan generally because it's not just the enemy who's the problem. It's our fallen condition. We bite on a lie that says God doesn't know best. God doesn't have my best interests at heart and I'm going to go my own way. And Paul says there's an immediate after effect called sexual impurity. Now, sexual impurity or sexual immorality are sin's version of what God created called sexual intimacy. You need to know this. God didn't create sexual immorality. God created sexual intimacy. What is sexual intimacy? One man, one woman, one lifetime. God is good. Praise be to God. See, we think of God as the most out-of-touch, clueless, disengaged person when it comes to sexuality. He made it, guys. Like God didn't walk into the garden and go, Adam, where did you come up with that? Get off her. Like he, there, there was no like, whoa, guys, I leave you alone for two seconds. He t- we can have fun in church. We need some comic relief with where we're about to go. And so God's not shocked by this. God's the designer. Anything that God creates is beautiful. What does sin do? Takes it and twists it, distorts it, and provides a cheaper version that bites like poison. It's sweeter, seems sweeter on the front end, but bites like poison on the way down. And so what you have when you have sexual immorality is you have every single distortion to what God made perfectly. Why does sin do that? Because Satan hates that our God is a good father who wants to give his kids good gifts. And so that distortion is felt, is seen, is understood by every single person in this room, regardless of your story and background. I don't know your story. I don't know your struggle. I couldn't even pretend to have a glimpse into the knowledge of the type of sexual baggage that has walked into this room. But here's what I do know. The distortion that sin has put on what God created to be this perfect, enjoyed gift in the context of the covenant of marriage has affected all of us, not to a certain degree, to a huge degree. And those distortions are all over the map and all over our stories. And I want to say that I'm not trying to hit at one particular issue 
or another today, as much as I'm trying to say that we're all broken, we all feel that, and we all know that sexual sin poisons us and disconnects us from God unlike any other sin. Scripture says it's the only type of sin where a man sins against his own body. That's why it says God gave them over for the degrading of their bodies. They're literally destroying what God entrusted to them. But as he's describing sexual impurity, he goes into detail about one particular expression of sexual impurity, same-sex attraction or homosexuality. And here's what he said. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones in the same way. The men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. And this is where I want us to kind of catch a breath and make sure we can all get on the same page real quick. I have no desire for this to be the message where somebody point blank talked about what's true and what's grace about homosexuality. I think for too long, we've tried to take that issue and separate it from all other sexual issues, and it only increases the shame on those who are struggling with it. But I also know that right now, there are Bible-believing Christians who need help knowing how to navigate this area as a friend as a parent, as someone who's personally struggling with it, if that's where you are today, I think there is such a large need for somebody to say something to help people that I'm going to take my best shot at full of grace and full of truth. And so maybe, hopefully this will only take five, maybe 10 minutes, but we can clearly get a message, not just out there to ACC, but to the Big C Church, because what breaks my heart the most about this is that it seems like either Christians are affirming what God calls sinful or are dead silent and feel paralyzed. We don't have to. I literally sit in front of my computer or on my phone reading stuff, and I'm like, no, don't ignore the question. This is such an easy question to answer. Like, and, and, and over time, it's been about five years of God going, I'm showing you this, I'm showing you this, and I'm like, oh, I just want to help people. And God's like, well, you do have a church of thousands of people. Why don't you start there and just tell them what you're thinking about? So here we go. You ready? Full grace, full truth. And instead of starting with a sea of people telling us how to relate to it out there, I want to say something to every person within the sound of my voice who has ever struggled with same-sex attraction or homosexual tendencies. I want to start right with you. And I want to first of all tell you that I am so sorry. I'm sorry that I have to do this right now. Because there is no other issue in the life of the church that ostracizes and isolates and demeans and shames one area of sinful strugglers more than this one. Like, didn't you read Romans 1? It said they, they disobey their parents. My oldest daughter turned three years old today. She disobeys me all the time. Nobody greets her at the door and tells her, hey, do you agree with Romans 1 where it says, like... If you disobey your parents, that's sin. Honestly, you need to work on that. But it feels like the whole church is waiting on you. If you're a guy attracted to other guys, or if you're a girl attracted to other girls, it seems like the church is waiting for you to teach you what the Bible says and correct your thinking. And if you don't, you need to go somewhere else. And I'm so sorry about that. That was never, ever, ever the way this was supposed to be. 
If you're carrying that shame into this space, if you wonder if you will ever have a family of your own because your entire life you have thought something is wrong with me and you've been mad at God and you've been mad at the church and you've been so mad at yourself that you've thought about harming yourself and you've been mad at your parents, here's what I want you to know today. Hear this from heaven. There's nothing wrong with you. You're not weird. You're not messed up. God didn't make a mistake with you. You are experiencing a distortion, a part of our broken, sinful nature, this side of heaven that is just like every other distortion related to sin, period. And I'm so sorry that that message hasn't been clearly sent out. I'm so, so sorry that the church has been an unsafe place for you to come and struggle well because I know you love Jesus and I know you didn't ask for this. No. Let me address everyone. There's a part of you that's like, okay, he went grace, made him feel better, good, but now he's got he's to even it out and tell us that the Bible's against this because, you know, the debate that's going on right now and multiple different groups, it's like, well, does the Bible really teach this? And so here we go. Tell them that it's sinful, that it's not okay, that they have to change. Your tendency to need me to say that is the problem. That's the problem. So you feel that in you that's like, yeah, but, but make sure, make sure you correct it. Make sure because like it's really up in the air. There's churches who are openly affirming this lifestyle. You need to point blank say that it's wrong. Listen, I don't need to say that because the Bible says that. This isn't a confusing issue. This actually isn't much of a debate. Did you read what we just read? And I don't, I, don't, I don't mean to be comical about this, but the level of folly of engaging an argument like that shows how foolish we really are. Scripture says, don't answer a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him. If somebody, anybody, wants to openly discuss with me that the Bible actually doesn't teach against homosexuality, I cannot have that conversation with them because they are delusional. And I do not mean that to be offensive. I've done my research. I looked into the best arguments that the Bible actually doesn't teach against homosexuality. And I found things like 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where Paul explicitly describes homosexual sex as directly related to sexual immorality. The language is almost linked like a chain. It would be like trying to argue with someone about my hair being blonde. That's what it would be like. So if I got in front of you and said, guys, don't you like my blonde hair? So you would be like, oh... I mean, like you, you might want it to be blonde and you might think that it's blonde as your version of the life that you want to enjoy. But Miles, like your hair's black. According to say it's dark brown. I think it's black. And so it's like your, your hair's not blonde. Here's what I'm saying. Here's what I'm saying. Our tendency to bang the gavel of truth on an issue that the Bible has already so explicitly done it for us is where we are missing it. We are missing it. It's black and white. So we're not talking about an issue of homosexuality. We're talking about an issue of whether or not we take the word of God seriously. If you're telling me that you want to follow Jesus, but you just want to twist some of his words, I don't have to have a conversation with you about homosexuality because clearly you're not serious about being a follower of Jesus. You don't love the word of God. So we don't have to argue about this. This actually should be setting a ton of people free. The real issue is, what does it mean to be a Christian? 
A Christian is somebody who's aware of their own sinful struggles and totally surrendered to the process of sanctification over time in the life of a local church, regardless of how long that takes. And so let me bring this home. Here's the choice that we've had. I promise we're almost done with this issue. The choice that we've had in church is a choice that seems like it's between grace and truth, but it's really not. Option one would be the church can be welcoming and affirming. And option two would be the church can be welcoming and non-affirming. So this is what we've been taught, and this is what's happening. Either you're a church that says, we welcome anybody practicing any lifestyle with open arms, and we will affirm you. God made you the way you are for a reason, and you're so welcome here, and we'll throw our arms around you. And there's no way we can possibly do that because that's unbiblical. But what you'll actually find, if you look at the statistics, is that the church is actually not that divided on this except the Methodists. They literally divided over this this week. Um, so pray for your Methodist friends. But, 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 but most of the traditional church does not have anything to do with option one. If you're a Bible-believing church, it's not as divided as you think. The only reason why I say that is don't believe everything you read on the news. Not everything that's visible because of media is actually true. Big part of... Uh, 2020, by the way, let's be careful in this election. And so, and so it's not one, but then the second one, welcoming, non-affirming, you think that that's the right option, but it's not really. Do not affirm of that desire in you. I do know you need to agree that what you're doing is wrong. So if option one is unbiblical, option two is unloving. And the good news about following Jesus is that you never have to choose between grace and truth because he's full of both. Church, we're not going to do either of these things. You know what we're going to do? We're going to be welcoming, mutually transforming. Welcoming, mutually transforming. There's another way. It doesn't have to be, yes, we affirm it and we're unbiblical, or no, we don't affirm it and we're unloving and we're not willing to have a conversation. We're welcoming, obviously. This is the most welcoming church I've ever been to, just being real with you. But we're mutually transforming. What does that mean? That's how every single person who's a sinful struggler walks with Jesus over time. We mutually live in community with one another and we're transformed over time as our desires become conformed into the image of Christ. Guys, Jesus is not trying to sanctify our believings. Jesus is trying to sanctify our desires. So what Jesus wants to do related to this issue is not go, let me fix how everybody thinks about this. Guys, the book is written. It's so clear. We don't need to defend what will defend itself on its own. The word of God is sufficient. What we need to do is make sure we are clear about every sinful issue, that you have a place where you're welcome to come in and be conformed to the truth over time. Your journey might look like a year struggling with that. Your journey might look like 30 years of being miserable and watching very little growth in that area of Jesus doing this or that or the other. I can't speak to what that's going to look like, but what I can tell you is that we're going to do it together. That's what mutually transforming means. It means your issue and your weakness complements my issue and my weakness because over time, his grace is sufficient for me because my power, God's power is made perfect in weakness. You're like, how does, this, how does this play itself out? I don't understand. I don't understand. Pay attention. I'll just give you an example, okay? Homosexuality is not the only sexual issue that people walk into Christian churches ultimately or totally seeming like they ignore about a sexual ethic from the Bible. I'm going to make things really uncomfortable for a second. Let's talk about divorce and adultery for a second. 
You know that Jesus explicitly taught that if two people get divorced and their divorce was not because of adultery or abuse, and then they remarry, their remarriage is considered adultery. And we have people all over this audience and all over our church right now who have remarried. And this just got really uncomfortable, and I'm kind of glad it did, because the people struggling with same-sex attraction shouldn't be the only people in the audience who are super uncomfortable when these conversations happen. But listen, listen, if that's you in the room, and we know we have couples like that, we believe that God's grace and truth over time can transform your life. What we're not going to do is meet you at the door as you walk in with your spouse and go, whoa, whoa, you guys got remarried? Okay, uh, whoa, 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 okay, did, did you know, did you know Jesus said this about your remarriage and was this because of adultery or abuse? Because if it's not, we could have some sin here that needs to be repented over. We would never do that, ever. What we would do is say, come on in. Let's get around the word of God together. Let's talk about this because people are complicated. Sin is complicated and desires being shifted and people openly repenting in God's timetable is on God. It's on us to provide an environment that's welcoming and be committed to the scripture so that people are mutually transformed. We're not gonna do that. And we're not gonna go, oh, you know, you are like living in open rebellion to things the Bible doesn't approve of. Okay, walk up to somebody who struggles with anxiety and worrying and talk about Philippians chapter four and go, this says don't worry about anything. Why are you worried? You would not approach them like that. They're like, oh, really? The Bible says that? I didn't know the Bible said that. That's amazing. Thank you. I won't be worried anymore. No. <laughs> They'd be like, I know the Bible says that and I'm struggling and I need help. So let's be the help. Can we do that? That's all we have to do. Bible's clear. Yes, it's sinful. Yes, it's against God. So is your issue. I love that disobeying your parents was on there. I love that greed was on there. Somebody, a man who has chosen greed his entire life walks through the door. And what are we going to do? We're going to ask him for his bank statements to show how generous he's been? No, we're going to invite him in to loving community so that over time, God will sanctify his desires. This is not that complicated. And it's why I've been sitting there for years going, I need to say something about this. I need to say something about this because here's the, here's the best part. Jesus has offered freedom for our physical bodies sexually through following him, through intimacy with him. Romans goes a long way describing the sinfulness of humanity, but Paul has some killer moments where he talks about redemption, and I want to read you one from Romans 7. It says this, What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Christ Jesus our Lord. I love that. Paul's awareness of the sinfulness of his physical body leaves him saying, I am wretched, I am lost, I am depraved. Who's going to save me from this body of death? And suddenly he flips. The very man who said that we don't glorify God because we don't thank him flips the script. This is where the gospel changes everything. And he says, thanks, thanks be to God because Jesus Christ has transformed me and given me a new beginning. So if your issue is homosexuality, if your issue is pornography, if your issue is gender identification, if your issue is premarital sex, if your issue is the fact that you're married and you can't experience intimacy with your spouse because of the abuse that happened when you were little, if your issue is I just can't stop sinning sexually and I have no self-control, whatever your issue is, the answer is the same, Jesus. And he is going to be the one who mutually transforms us in loving community. Now, let me grab everybody. Let me grab everybody. I'm going super long today, but this is too important. I believe that that issue doesn't need to be singled out anymore. So from now on, when somebody asks us, 
What's your stance on homosexuality? Don't ever answer that question. You, here, yes, you can answer that question. Here's the answer. That's a bad question. What you need to be asking is, what's God's stance on sin, and how does he eradicate it over time in a process called sanctification? That's what you should be asking, and I can answer that gladly. It's for everyone. So from now on, we're not going to single this out. We're going to point people back to this sermon and go, you, you, need, you need to listen to that. Guys, you better have got this. We've got two more chances today. But here's the bottom line. Here's the bottom line. You might want to write this down. God intends sexual intimacy to sanctify you. Sin intends sexual immorality to destroy you. God intends sexual intimacy to sanctify you. Sin intends sexual immorality to destroy you. So how God created sexual intimacy actually has the capacity to sanctify you. What do you mean? When I struggle with sexual sin, it's my invitation into the grace of God so that I can watch his power overcome my weakness. When I experience intimacy with Jesus and intimacy with my spouse, or I wait on intimacy with my spouse, I am now using this area of my life to become more like Jesus. This is a gift on both ends in our struggling with it and in our experiencing it. It all contributes towards sanctification. But what sin does is goes, no, 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 not one man, one woman, one lifetime. Let's just Let's just totally do anything against God's design for it. We'll change the name from sexual intimacy to sexual immorality and we'll destroy people. Why? Because cheap pleasure always leads to lasting pain. But God's pleasure always leads to lasting joy. God did not create sexual intimacy like this to bother you or to make it difficult for you. God created it this way because he knows what joy actually lasts. God has your best at heart. He's a good good father. And he's fathering some of you today. And so I need you to know today that your sinful struggle is the enemy's effort to destroy you. But what God wants to do is sanctify you. How does he do it? I got two things. Somebody say grace. Somebody say truth. Two things very quickly. Here's what I want you to do today. And here's how we're going to be this church. Number one, commit to pursuing intimacy. And number two, connect by accepting purity. Commit to pursuing intimacy and connect by accepting purity. Let me walk through these. Stop pursuing purity. Think purity is the goal. No, intimacy is the goal. You pursue intimacy with God in any season of life, the result will be purity. What I heard growing up, what is, what is purity? Purity is without defilement, without contamination. This world will contaminate you. So if you're told your whole life to pursue purity and then you feel increasingly more and more contaminated, you'll start to feel disqualified from the family of God. What you needed to be pursuing all along was intimacy because sexual sin is not a fire you fight with water. It's a fire you fight with fire. Sexual sin so strong, it'll overtake you. You want to know how to beat it? Create a fire that engulfs it. A fire to know Jesus deeper. A fire to love your spouse with a wholehearted devotion. A fire that goes, I don't want the brokenness that this world has to offer. So what we've done is we've all got our fire hoses out and gone, get rid of sexual temptation. And it's not going well. It's not. You don't need to commit to chasing after purity. You need to commit to chasing after intimacy. And you'll see why purity is actually yours in Jesus with point number two. But I want to show you in the scriptures. Paul says, not Paul, sorry, somebody in Hebrews. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. You can tell who I think wrote Hebrews. Um, Jesus said in Matthew, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. There's a direct relationship between personal holiness and your revelation of God. Now, here's how I was taught this growing up. Chase personal holiness. God will reveal himself. 
And so try to be holy, I get more of God. What if it's the other way around? What if it's pursue God, get a revelation of him, and it increases my determination to live a holy life? Because if I'm fueled on fire of a revelation of him, I'm going to live in holiness because there's nothing better than him. There's a pastor in our community in his 70s. Literally, literally, his church is right there. Like you could throw a rock from our church and hit his church. And he sat down with me at lunch and said, Miles, your greatest weapon against the enemy is two fires, intimacy with Jesus and intimacy with your wife. He said, if those fires are burning white hot, there is no temptation that's going to seize you that has any chance. I was like, talk to me, Al Jackson. Come on. So good. You got to have a fire burning. So you're like, well, I'm not, God's left me in a season of singleness. So you can still have intimacy with Jesus. It's the great thing about this is it, it doesn't play games with your individual season of life. Now, how you commit to pursuing intimacy, that looks different on every level. For some of us, it's accountability groups. For some of us, it's accountability software. For some of us, it's counseling. It's marital counseling. It's conversations. Yes, all the strategies. Yes, yes, yes. But remember, this talk is a baseline foundation. Your commitment doesn't mean, doesn't need to be, I'm going to chase purity for the rest of my life. Your commitment needs to be, I'm going to pursue intimacy. And then lastly, connect by accepting purity. Why? Why did I use the word connect? because it looks like commit, but also because nothing will ever make you feel more disconnected from God than continually struggling with sexual sin. I can say that with scriptures, but more powerfully, on top of those scriptures, I can say it from experience. Nothing will make you feel more disconnected from God than sexual sin. But what you need to understand is that purity is not something you have. It's something you are. So we were taught about virginity growing up. Don't give anyone your virginity, but we would use language like, I gave away my purity. I can't get it back. Well, that is true about your virginity, but purity is different. Purity is a state of being. Purity is a result of being washed. And what does the scripture tell us about the blood of Jesus? It tells us that once washed in the blood of Jesus, we are cleansed without contamination or any other wrinkle presented white and holy in his sight as the bride of Christ. If you're a Christian, if you're in Christ, remember, what does it mean to be a Christian? Fully devoted to letting the teachings of Jesus transform my desires over time until I'm in glory with God. If that's you today, I got good news. Everybody look up here and don't miss this. There has not been one moment in your life where God has looked at you and thought to himself anything other than this. Pure. Clean. Because of the blood, not because of you. And so the question today is so simple. It's the question for everybody struggling with homosexuality. It's the question for everybody struggling with heterosexual sin, pornography, whatever. Are you connected to Jesus? And what you need to do today, I think for so many of you, is accept the mercy that is already yours in Christ. You can put your notes away. Let's stand up all over this room. This message is too sensitive for people to be walking in and out of the room. I get it if you have plans. I get it if you have kids. But please, for the love of the Holy Spirit, would you please stay right where you are? God is moving in this space. I want to ask that as the band comes up here and as we step into this song, that you do both of those things. That you commit to pursuing intimacy with Jesus and your spouse for the rest of your life. 
and you connect to the purity that's already been given to you. It's not something you achieve. It's something you just need to receive. How do I receive it? By faith. Open your heart today. Would you close your eyes all over this room? I'm going to pray. I would just ask you in this room, if you're here and you've been believing the lie that your sexual sin is keeping you from having a loving relationship with your heavenly father, I want to pray for you. And I want to give you an opportunity to commit to pursuing intimacy for the rest of your life. Would you lift your hand all over this place if that's you? So many of us. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the boldness that's present in this room. I pray in Jesus' name that as we sing and as we step into this moment together, that these individuals would not commit to trying harder in disciplines, that they would connect to the purity that's already theirs in Jesus alone. God, I pray that as mercy falls like rain in this space, that we would believe the truth that you have ultimately spoke about us. You are more than enough, Jesus. We say yes to your blood. Cover this room in mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, let's sing.